For all of you who, in your youth, had to travel uphill both ways in a snowstorm, much like I did, or at least that's what it felt like, I am about to put us all in our place. We had nothing to complain about. My kids didn't believe me when I told them that they rarely, if ever, closed down school for the weather. I've waited all of these years for vindication. Once upon a time, after a sudden snow cloud exploded over New York, dropping up to 55 inches of snow in some areas, tens of thousands left their homes to head out for work and found themselves stranded. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. In the northern states, it's safe to start looking out for bad weather, sometimes as early as September-October. In Minnesota of 1887, November was gearing up to be quite nasty. Storms of rain and then sleet would battle each other in the skies, followed by snow to blanket the ice in treacherous ways. As much as 40 inches fell across the state. On January 5, 1888, a massive sleet storm added another layer of danger to the mountains of snow that keeping workers and children trapped inside their homes, if they were lucky. What they didn't know was a cold air mass had formed soon after around the Alberta and Saskatchewan areas. Winds reached hurricane strength and were pushing the entire cold front towards the United States. The people in the upper states were going about their business, sending their children to schools despite the snow and ice and frigid temperatures, with no idea what was coming for them. In fact, on January 11th and 12th, everyone was talking about what a beautiful break they were having from the days and days of winter weather. Nebraska's Journal Star would recall, quote, Storm stories gathered by History Nebraska and subsequent books chronicled how the blizzard caught people off guard. Most accounts agree that the early hours that day were unseasonably warm. Cattle were in fields, school children played outside during recess, men worked outdoors without coats. End quote. The Minneapolis Journal would write quote, The day dawned bright and clear, and every object about the horizon was distinctly visible. End quote. Carl Salty, a 16-year-old, would remember, quote, On the 12th of January, 1888, around noontime, it was so warm it melted snow and ice from the window until after 1 p.m., end quote. The warmer temperatures were a welcomed break from the harsh winter temperatures that trapped everyone indoors. No one was fooled so much that spring was on its way, but it was a wonderful opportunity to get out of their home and tend to some much-needed outdoor activity. Some lived in nothing more than sod shanties on the open prairies. They didn't provide much light, or much warmth for that matter, and they were always a work in progress. The children went on to school, the men went on to work, the livestock was tended to, the snow was removed from the roof, 
Women boiled water for laundry, thankful to be able to hang their clothes on the line. The livestock were grateful for the chance to come out of their stalls and stretch their legs. The young winter calves would have a chance to run and play and perhaps find something to snack on, a low-hanging branch or some leftover greens. As the women tended to their chores, the younger children were allowed to run and play and be as loud as they pleased. It was still cold, the temperatures were low, but the sun was so welcoming, and even with the little outdoor exertion, outer layers were beginning to be peeled off. What a beautiful day! Morton Bassett from Nobles County in Minnesota would recall, quote, It was a beautiful day for midwinter, and no one even thought of what a change an hour's time could bring, end quote. And that was no joke. Before anyone realized what was happening, seasons changed in an instant. It started with the blue skies being turned to a light gray that only got darker right before their eyes. But it was so far away. It seemed like there would be plenty of time to get their chores done and get back inside. The children would be released from school in a matter of hours. It should be fine. And then it wasn't. Within moments, those gray clouds that seemed miles away were upon them, and clouds, usually being the first warning sign, gave no such comfort. For this time, they brought with them stinging rain, howling winds, and buckets of snow. Some that managed to find safety quickly would report that the rain felt like tiny daggers or bits of glass piercing their skin. Others said their eyes froze shut in mere moments. Tears would freeze on their face and were immovable. The wind was blinding. One moment you were only a few steps from your front door, and the next you were so turned around and couldn't see anything in front of you that it was easy to wander off in the wrong direction. In Raymond, Dakota Territory, a report was heard about the two sons of William Driver, who were sent out to tend to the livestock. Then suddenly the storm came in, and they couldn't find their way back to their home. They were found only a few feet from the shelter of the barn. It wasn't long that everyone regretted leaving the comfort of their homes. A story from Paxton, Nebraska, talks about George W. Post and a few others who set out to do a bit of hunting to restock for the remainder of the winter, but they were never seen again. Thomas Glickerson and Otto Gose both set out for the day. They kept their dairy farm about two miles from their home. They went there to check on the cows and to also bring back some extra hay to help insulate their home a bit more. But the storm hit them so fast they got separated on the way back to their house. Otto Gose was able to make his way back to the house, barely alive, but Thomas Gilkerson would never make it. On the late afternoon of January 12, 1888, that storm that gathered speed on the Canada side pushed its way stateside and managed to cover almost 800 miles in less than 20 hours. Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, the Dakotas, Kansas, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, and even as far as Texas felt its wrath. 60-mile-an-hour winds, freezing rain hurling to the earth, the wind picking it up and relaunching it in swirling white tornadoes. Within only moments, whiteout conditions completely debilitated anyone who was caught without shelter. 
Farmer and Norwegian immigrant Austin Rolag from Valley Springs, South Dakota, wrote that, quote, The air turned silent and ominous, and in the next moment the blizzard crashed in. End quote. Another quote, Around 3.30 we heard a hideous roar. At first we thought that it was the Omaha train which had been blocked and was trying to open the track. My wife and I were near the barn when the storm came as if it had slid out of a sack. A hurricane-like wind blew so that the snow drifted high in the air and it became terribly cold. Within a few minutes it was as dark as a cellar and no one could see one's hand in front of one's face." Frank Thompson of Spearfish would recall, quote, Snow like flour. Could not breathe it in. I was seven years and stuck my head around the corner of the house and nearly choked before I got indoors again. Snow banks like sand. Horses made no tracks. Snow drifts 30 feet wide. Then bare ground 30 feet. And then another drift. End quote. Boston Daily Advertiser writes, quote, Midnight at noon, at Fargo, Mercury 47 below zero and hurricane blowing. At Niche, Dakota, the thermometer is 58 below zero, end quote. Carl Salty in Fortier, Minnesota, remembered that, quote, A dark and heavy wall builded up around the northwest coming fast, coming like those heavy thunderstorms, like a shot. In a few moments, we had the severest snowstorm I ever saw in my life with a terrible hard wind like a hurricane. Snow so thick we could not see more than three steps from the door at times, end quote. The Jose Evening News would report, quote, a Nebraska blizzard. When the recent blizzard struck the state of Nebraska, the temperature fell so rapidly that the creek at the Papillion was frozen solid in a few minutes. A calf that was in the stream at the time stuck fast before it could extricate itself. The animal was cut out with axes and thawed out before a bonfire. At last accounts, it was doing well. End quote. Others wouldn't be so lucky. Cecilia Knudsen was so worried when her husband hadn't returned to the house after the storm came, she decided to go look for him. She added on a few layers of clothes and grabbed their sled, promising to be gone for only just a moment. But the blizzard was so blinding and cold, she became confused and disoriented. She froze to death under a sled a mere 40 steps from her front door. Hanley Countryman had gone out for provisions and was on his way back to his home when the storm hit. He was carrying 40 pounds of supplies when he fell to the ground, freezing to death. He was only 150 yards from his front door. Townspeople attempted to rescue passengers from a train that was forced to stop on the track. Twenty-three were saved, but no one, rescued or the rescuers, escaped unscathed. Several reports of hypothermia and also frostbite that became so bad, fingers, hands, feet, and toes had to be removed to save their life. One woman, Wilhelmina Lupke of Hutchison, Minnesota, was unable to receive help in time and died from gangrene that set in after her hands and feet were severely frozen. Another story about a train car that overturned talked about a man that went crazy, literally. Quote, Two or three of the party lost their heads and one man became partially deranged, crying and howling, and in his wilderness, pulling the robes and wraps from ladies in front of him, saying that he had but a few minutes to live and that he must get warm before he died, 
The rest of the passengers, some twenty-five people, spent three cold nights on the stalled train with little food. There's a story from a man named N. E. Turner, a bigger, burly man with a long, thick beard who was making his way into Westport in South Dakota by horse and wagon. He was already a good way into his journey when the storm hit. He'd recall, quote, The wind continued to increase in violence, and a very fine snow began falling thick and fast. I had not gone a mile further when the elements became fairly mad, and I could not see the road twenty feet ahead of the horses. I had now gone so far, and the storm was raging with such severity that to think of turning around to go home, thus facing the wind, was utterly nonsensical. It did not take long for me to come to the conclusion that the best thing, in fact, the only thing I could do, was to keep the wind at my back, try not to lose sight of the railroad track, and, if possible, make Aberdeen before night set in. By the time he arrived to safely, his beard and face were covered with ice two inches thick. His eyes were almost completely closed from the ice freezing them to mere slits. He was able to barely see shapes and had to completely trust his horses, which survived as well, by the way. I knew you'd want to know. It was amazing how widespread the news coverage was about the blizzard. The Minneapolis Tribune would print on the 17th, quote, It is placing the number of fatalities at a low figure to say at least 100 human beings lost their lives in the dreaded storm within a 50-mile radius of Yankton, South Dakota, end quote. The totals would go as high as 500 across the states and continue to go even higher as the winter revealed its hidden collection. Some bodies and missing persons would never be found. Many places where there is news coverage, the blizzard of January 1888 is often called the children's blizzard or the schoolhouse blizzard. And that is unfortunately because many of the victims were children. School was in session, and the teachers, usually very young themselves, had to make the decision of whether the children should stay at the schoolhouse or rush to get home before the storm arrived. And again, a quote-unquote normal snowstorm wouldn't ordinarily move as fast as this one did, but no one knew. Many of the schoolhouses, and homes for that matter, were built quickly and cheaply with gaping holes between the slats and tar paper for roofs. Most had no flooring. As the storm raged on, the snow and ice would find its way into buildings through the stovepipes and chimneys, space under the doors and around the windows, as well as every single crack and opening it could blow into. Newspaper man Charles Morse, founder of the Lake Benton News, recalled his office-slash-apartment was astonished by the, quote, manner in which the fine stuff would be driven through the smallest aperture. My sleeping quarters were on the second floor, leading off a hallway at the head of the stairs. On arriving home, I found the wind had forced open the door, and the stairway was packed with snow. And when I reached my room, I found my bed covered with several inches of snow, which had filtered over the threshold and through the keyhole. End quote. On January 13th, the Boston Daily Journal reprints an article from Dakota that reads in part, quote, the wind is blowing 50 miles an hour. The air is so full of snow that no one is able to see 50 feet at any time. Unthinking teachers today dismissed young school children, some of whom have to go four or five blocks across the open land. 
five or six children got lost. Whistles blew, bells rang, and people turned out and took long ropes and often walked fifteen or twenty feet abreast back and forth over the ground. Two children were found, but at last accounts the others were missing. End quote. It was a tough choice for the teachers, and I don't believe, like the article stated, that they were unthinking. There really was no right answer. Redfield, Dakota, January 14th. A son of Henry Older, a farmer living ten miles northwest of here, started out Thursday morning with a team to take four of his younger brothers and sisters to school. He reached the schoolhouse with his load and had started home when the storm struck him. He started back to the schoolhouse to get the children. The two elder ones expressed a desire to remain. The others started home with the young man. They had not gone far when they lost their way and finally unhitched the team and covered themselves with robes and lay down in the sleigh. There they remained 26 hours until they were discovered yesterday morning, all three being terribly frozen and almost dead. Their chances of life are very small. One of the horses was dead when found. Six children of James Baker froze to death while trying to make it home from school near Chester Township, Minnesota. They were found with their arms entwining each other in the snow. Oh, that just cuts me straight to my heart. In some cases, instead of moving the children, it was deemed safer to tie a rope between buildings and bring them supplies, as it was reported in Falkton, Dakota. That paper wrote, The most terrific storm ever witnessed in this latitude has been upon us for the last 48 hours. It reached its worst yesterday, and from 10 o'clock until dark, there was not 10 minutes that buildings on the opposite side of the street could be seen. The teachers and most of the scholars of the two lower departments of our schools were compelled to remain in one of the schoolrooms all night, provisions being carried to them. Ropes were stretched from the corner of Main Street to the schoolhouse to enable those carrying provisions to go and come with safety." Pioneers William and Kate Campen, who lived in a small sod house in Marion, South Dakota Territory, were caught ill-prepared for such a blizzard. They had run out of coal for their fire, so William was forced to leave for the town of Parker, South Dakota, some 23 miles away, to buy more coal and supplies. He took two of his horses with him. While William was gone, 19-year-old Kate gave birth alone to their first son, Henry Royal Campen, on January 8, 1888. While in town, the blizzard hit and several of William's friends tried to persuade him to stay in town, but he knew he had to get back home to Kate, not knowing she had given birth to their son, but knowing that there wasn't much time left as far as heat was concerned. The storm was severe and raged on as he tried to make his way back home. He stayed with his horses, but eventually both of them died because the wind was so strong that both of the horses suffocated. William was able to find a barn with pigs in it, and so he crawled in with them to try and keep warm. Meanwhile, Kate kept herself and the baby warm by staying in bed. William finally made it back home to Kate and the baby after spending three days and nights out on the prairie alone. A miracle in and of itself. Just the sheer stamina of these people is absolutely amazing to me. But in typical American spirit, People who are facing tragedy and hardship become surprisingly resilient. Many stepped up and would be called heroes of the day. 
Many were the teachers who, in some instances, were blasted by the media for sending the children home, only to be stuck in the blizzard. But seriously, I can't express this enough. It came on that fast. And there were also cases of those who did not send children home, but still ended up perishing at the schoolhouse. At that time, the schoolhouse buildings were a very low priority, and so not much energy or ingenuity was put into their creation. Inexpensive, inferior supplies, thin walls, and minimal coal for the fire. I found these stories in various newspapers. School teacher Seymour Dopp in Pawnee City, Nebraska, kept his 17 students at school when the storm began at 2 p.m. They stayed overnight, burning stockpiled wood to keep warm. The next day, parents made their way over the five-foot snowdrifts to rescue the children. In Great Plains, South Dakota, two men rescued the children in a schoolhouse by tying a rope from the school to the nearest shelter to lead them to safety. Minnie Freeman, a teacher in Nebraska, successfully led her children to shelter after the storm tore the roof off their one-room schoolhouse. Minnie Freeman was a 19-year-old teacher at the schoolhouse about six miles south of Ord, Nebraska, in an area known as Myra Valley. She linked her pupils together with twine and led them through the blinding storm to safety at a farmhouse. Cleveland, Ohio's Plain Dealer adds in their article, in Winter's Grasp, quote, By forming in parties of ten each, taking a long rope and marching across the prairie in a line, the villagers today found all the lost schoolchildren except one, a child of ten named Johnson. Search still continues tonight, but as the mercury is ten below, there is little hope of finding the child alive, end quote. On January 13th, the Duluth Daily News reports, quote, the storm came up suddenly, and it is feared that many schoolchildren who were out on the prairie are lost. Whistles were kept blowing all day as signals to the unfortunates. End quote. Many who did make it to their homes, or at least a safe space, would claim they never heard the whistles meant to help them. The roar of the storm was so loud, they said, they could barely hear their own thoughts. And those who blew the whistles, or rung bells, or clanged on pots and pans, they would suffer terrible frostbite on their fingers and hands, their ankles and their feet. Their fingers would actually freeze to the instrument they were holding. Some would actually lose their life doing this very life-saving thing. See, heroes, one and all. People of that lineage are alive today because of those brave folks. We cover a lot of bad news here on the podcast. It sure does feel nice to share some good stuff, too. I mean. In, in the midst of bad news, of course. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. Side note. Though upper Midwesterners lost the most, the blizzard was truly a nationwide phenomena. Ice skating was reported in San Francisco on January 14th, along with frozen water mains in Los Angeles. Fort Elliott, Texas registered a 7 below zero temperature on the 14th, and for the first time in anyone's memory, Parts of the Colorado River in Texas froze over. In the aftermath of the quote-unquote children's blizzard, as always, the people rallied to survive and rebuild and search for their loved ones. It was said that, quote, frozen cattle lay in a 10-mile stretch from northwest to southeast, the animals collapsed bodies marking the current of the wind. 
A few of the cows were living, just barely, but when they got them back to the barn and thawed them out, their frozen flesh came off in chunks. This was the high cost of exposure, end quote. Uh, gross. As I mentioned before, it's nearly impossible to tally the amount of the lost lives. Author David Laskin, who wrote the book The Children's Blizzard in 2004, and would mention, quote, Undoubtedly, many deaths were never reported from remote outlying districts. Scores died in the weeks after the storm of pneumonia and infections contracted during amputations, end quote. A website wrote, quote, Compiling a solid count of the dead remains difficult years later, not only because of spotty records and missing rural newspapers, but also because many settlers' bodies weren't found for days or even months, end quote. And Laskin would add, quote, For years afterwards, at gatherings of any size in Dakota or Nebraska, there would always be people walking on wooden legs or holding fingerless hands behind their backs or missing ears under hats, end quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. It was called the worst blizzard of all time. It's been referred to as a winter hurricane. In history, it's called the Great Blizzard of 1888. It came about much the same way the last blizzard we talked about, where people were lulled into a false sense of spring and then bam, freezing rain, pelting rain, then a whirlwind of snow. It happened the same year, 1888, only a couple months later, and only a few states away. March 10th, 1888 began as a pretty warm day. In fact, the people of New York had banked that the worst of the winter was behind them. The temperatures had warmed, the flowers were in bloom, and the ladies were donning their spring attire. The U.S. Army Signal Corps which was the main weather station at the time, it was based in Washington, D.C., and they reported that, quote, fresh, brisk winds with rain, followed by colder, brisk, westerly winds and fair weather throughout the Atlantic states could be expected for the next three days, end quote. And just like what happened for the children's blizzard, the cold Arctic air from Canada collided with the Gulf's balmy air from the south and temperatures plunged within hours, especially after the sun went down. Rain turned to snow, and winds reached hurricane-strength levels. By midnight on March 11th, gusts were recorded at 85 miles per hour in New York City. In some areas of the East Coast, snowfall had reached 
fifty-five inches. With the sleet underneath and the winds blowing so fiercely, some said that the wind would push all of the snow off of one street, but it would be piled up to forty-five and fifty feet bluffs against a building, trapping hundreds of people inside. While all of this information is bad enough, I think I need to pause here and give you a visual of what New York looked like during this time. It's easy to forget, and while we have all gone through some kind of natural disaster, snowstorms, hurricanes, tornadoes, I raise my hand for all of those, by the way. We have it so easy now. Alert systems, weather radar, even chemical solutions for our paved streets would have made a huge difference back then. But let's take a look at what the major city New York looked like at this blip in time. Even though this storm rocked most of the East Coast, New York is probably the easiest to paint a picture of city life and just what a few dozen inches of snow can do. So, in 1888, New York was only just getting used to seeing the Statue of Liberty on its horizon. She'd only been completed in 1886. Isn't that a weird thought? I know her origin story is told in the history classes, but it just seems like she's always been there. What an awe-inspiring sight that must have been those first few years. People and families are packed in rows and rows of townhouses and apartments. And, um, no indoor plumbing. That was not really a thing yet. It took until the 1900s to require homes to, quote-unquote, have toilet rooms. Before that, there were outhouses in the backyards, and the cities created sewers that people could uh, pour waste into, but indoor plumbing was only just starting to become a thing for the rich in the late 1850s, and while they don't have to trudge out to the backyard in the cold, it was far from the bathrooms we take for granted these days. Telephones and electricity were still also fairly new within the last decade, and the telegraph was still the old standby and in regular use. Side note, did you know when Edison was hired to install electrical lines, he automatically buried them underground, believing that it was the best option, but it was later discovered that it was way cheaper to string them up overhead, so every other company following went up. So picture thick wires coming from people's homes out to these power poles that would dot the streets, creating a mass of dangling, interwoven wires. Oh, and as each new company would enter the electric or telephone craze, they would each have their own poles and wires, making it such a hazardous mess. And it was not very pretty either. The city was actually growing faster than what it was prepared for. The majority of people still used horse and carriage for transportation, even though you could look overhead and see a railway train taking hundreds and thousands of people to and from their jobs. What an odd time to be alive. Having one foot in the past and the other in the future, all swirling and competing for space at the same time. This is also the era of the factory. The majority of people, and if you recall episode 25 from season 1 on the backs of babes, even the children were expected to show up at work. It didn't matter what the weather was doing. 
work was sometimes hard to find, and every penny was pivotal to each family for survival. Where, if you didn't show up for work, you could very well lose your job to someone else, permanently. So the answer to your probably immediate thought to why didn't these people just stay home, that was it. Again, the city was filling up with people faster than they could accommodate. The city was growing and modernizing, but everything was happening so fast, no one had a chance to put procedures and safety protocols in place. No one had a long-term plan. They didn't have proper garbage disposal. They didn't have proper sewage systems in place. They still had lamplighters who would go one by one, lighting each lamp illuminating the street. And horses and carriage means there was also horse poop all over the streets. Cities along the East Coast were overly crowded, and the incredibly wealthy lived only blocks from the incredibly poor. The population at the time in New York City was about 1.5 million people. The Atlantic would write, quote, Late 19th century cities were monuments to man's mastery of nature. Elevated railroads whisked passengers about. Streetlights banished the darkness of night. Telephone and telegraph wires crisscrossed the roads. Horses hauled hundreds of millions of riders around the street. Railroads and delivery carts ferried coal, dry goods, and all conceivable comestibles about the streets. End quote. The podcast The Brewery Boys did an excellent episode on the Great Blizzard of 1888, and they would say of New York at the time, quote, New York was the financial center, also the industrial center. It was the country's most important port as well. Edison had been lighting several businesses downtown, and other companies were getting into the game too. So, New York had electricity. The city was moving uptown, the buildings were growing taller, and the entertainment was clustering. Thousands of immigrants were arriving into the city every day, end quote. Herald Square and Madison Square were the mecca of the entertainment and social status. The Bowery Boys say, quote, So you're walking around these city streets in 1888, and you look up, and you see a few things that you don't see today. Notably, you'd see the elevated railroads. They started in the 1870s. They would take tens of thousands of New Yorkers back and forth to work every day. The other thing you would see when you looked up was a sort of cobweb of crisscrossing wires. This is a boom time with the technology of the telegraph and the telephone. Here's a city that's beginning to take the form and shape of the city we know today. End quote. Now that you have a nice visual, let's add 30 inches of snow and 45 mile an hour winds to start. For the greatest city in America, New York, with all its modernizations, entertainment, and citizens, it would take a blizzard of monumental proportions for it to stop and recognize its vulnerabilities. From what I understand, the storm started late on the 10th around 11 p.m. and continued nonstop all through the night. So when the people woke up in the morning around 5 or 6, there were massive snowdrifts right outside their door. Blake McKelvey, the author of Snow in the Cities, A History of America's Urban Response, would write, quote, Many early risers on the 12th were dazed to find their doors and first-story windows covered by packed snow. 
four-fifths of its 10,000 telephones were silent, and practically all of its electric lights and great majority of more numerous gas lamps were blackened out that night, end quote. Now me, I probably would have said, nope, not going out there, but, like I mentioned before, they didn't really have a choice. If they didn't go to work, they might be out of a job. There was no such thing as snow days. You went to work no matter what. So, they did. Or, at least they attempted to. New York City data reported, quote, Communication lines between Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia were broken because the accumulated ice on overhead telephone lines was too heavy, resulting in downed lines. Roads were impossible to traverse, fire stations could not provide rescue, and necessary deliveries of coal and fresh food were delayed long after the storm passed, end quote. So, let's think about this. It's been snowing and sleeting all night. Many people are literally buried in their homes and have to dig their way out. And some of them do. Their stamina is just incredible. They dig their way to the street, and they force themselves to walk to the train station that they assume is just going to be ready to take them to work. If they had to get to their jobs for fear of losing it, so did the train folks for the same reasons. And, believe it or not, the trains had been running since 5 a.m. But the storm wasn't finished. It rages on. Fresh snow was still falling, and the snow on the ground was rising up and swirling about before settling somewhere else. Finally, the weather and the mounting snow forced the trains to stop. Sometimes between stations. Sometimes loaded with passengers. So the people couldn't even get out if they wanted to. As the early morning goes on, the snow is getting thicker. The ice isn't melting, and the wind is constantly threatening to rock the train off the rails. Did I mention these trains were several feet overhead? About 15,000 people were stranded on these elevated trains. So, if you did make it to your mode of transportation, it wasn't able to transport you anywhere. The Sun newspaper on March 13, 1888, wrote, At 10 minutes past 10, a train stopped at 23rd Street, and after a wait of several minutes, the guards announced that there was a solid block of trains extending southward as far as Chambers Street. Most of the standees and a few of the others promptly left the train and proceeded the rest of the way downtown on foot. At the station, the ticket agent had sensibly closed the gate to his office so that patrons were not induced to buy tickets and endure a hopeless wait upon the chilly platform, end quote. So they weren't allowed to take the train, but they still tried to walk to work. But even walking the streets could be deadly. In fact, only 30 people out of 1,000 were able to make it to the infamous New York Stock Exchange for work. Wall Street was forced to close for three straight days. Unlike Edison's lines, all of New York and the East Coast had built their cities above ground. The telephones, the telegraph, the water lines, the electric, the gas lines, everything was freezing and buckling under the weight of the snow. Telephone poles would bow over and the lines would snap and break, leaving live electrical wires flailing about on the ground. 
people were found electrocuted, collapsing, and freezing all over the city. One paper wrote, quote, The East River running between Manhattan and Queens froze over an extremely rare occurrence. This inspired some brave souls to cross the river on foot, which proved a terrible mistake when the tides changed and broke up the ice, stranding the adventurers on ice flows, end quote. The U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration would write, quote, The storm became legendary in New York City. As the economy was struggling, most workers went to their jobs regardless of the weather conditions. Property damage in the five boroughs was estimated at $25 million, end quote. NYC data adds, quote, Many who made the journey to work without knowing the severity of the storm were later found frozen and buried under layers of snow, some starved due to lack of fresh food. Horses, birds, and farm animals were also found dead in areas hit by the storm, end quote. Side note, thousands of animals died from the zoo and in and around other farms. More than 400 people died in New York City alone. In short, it was a disaster, unless you found a way to take advantage of the situation. When life hands you lemons or 55 inches of snow, you offer entertainment. P.T. Barnum, whose circus was located at Madison Square Garden, was open for business and making a killing. According to American Heritage, Barnum says, quote, If only one customer had come, I would have given the complete show. My duty is to the public, and nothing shall ever keep me from honoring that duty except Judgment Day itself. End quote. Now, if it was just himself that provided the entertainment, a noble man he would be indeed. But, lest we forget, he was one of those managers that required his staff to be there, regardless of circumstance, so that he may offer his show to the public and make his fortune. Food for thought. According to the New York Times on March 13, 1888, Barnum would say about himself, quote, the storm might be a great show, but he still had the greatest show on earth and he wants everybody to come see it for themselves, End quote. The Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show on Earth Circus was open for business. There was three-hour matinees and also an evening show on March 12th. Each show entertained about 100 spectators. And then there were residents who just happened to have really long ladders and were making good use of their time and property by assisting those trapped in the trains, not at a station, hovering several feet above ground, for a cost. The rate was anywhere from five cents to a full dollar. And then there were others who were silly enough to abandon their warmth and comfort to aid and assist others out of the kindness of their own hearts. One train managed to get stuck over a bar. The entrepreneurial spirit was alive and well when a bucket was lowered down from the train and filled with liquid spirits to help the folks trapped inside with a beverage to help warm their souls. Author Mark Twain happened to be in New York at the time and was stranded at his hotel for several days. He was hoping to be joined by his wife, Olivia, for a little vacation but the storm completely sidelined their plans. He wrote this to her, quote, 
And so, after all my labor and persuasion to get you to at last promise to take a week's holiday and go off with me on a lark, this is what Providence has gone and done about it. It does seem to me the oddest thing, the way Providence manages. A mere simple request to you to stay at home would have been entirely sufficient. But no, that is not big enough. Picturesque enough. A blizzard's the idea. Pour down all the snow in stock, turn loose all the winds, bring a whole continent to a standstill. That is Providence's idea of the correct way to trump a person's trick. If I had known it was going to make all this trouble and cost all these millions, I never would have said anything about your going. End quote. Side note, it's said that Twain also enjoyed following and remarking about weather and would often leave notes in the margins of his current work about what was happening, complete with little pictures. Another New Yorker that dared the storm was former Senator Roscoe Conkling. For some reason, he was at work on the 12th. Now, this was not a man who would lose his job if he didn't show up. He was now a lawyer on Wall Street, making a phenomenal sum in those days. The Sun would report on his miraculous walk just a day after the storm. He would tell reporters that he was, quote, not thinking that the city would be dark at night when he left his downtown office, end quote. He left his office and didn't realize, I guess, that things were still operating under emergency conditions. He'd say, quote, there wasn't a cab or carriage of any kind to be had. Once during the day, I had declined an offer to ride uptown in a carriage because the man wanted $50, and I started up Broadway on my pins. It was dark, and it was useless to try and pick out a path, so I went magnificently along shouldered through drifts and headed for the north. End quote. Instead, he charged on in the direction of his home, magnificently so, as he would claim. The wind was still blowing severely and the temperatures hadn't let up. He wasn't sure if it was fresh snow coming down or the same snow just whipping around and around. He would tell the son that he considered himself physically fit for a man of 58 years, and his favorite form of exercise was still climbing into the boxing ring. He refused to waver and trudged on. He'd confessed that he was, quote, pretty well exhausted when I got to Union Square. There was no light, and I plunged right through on as a straight line as I could determine upon. When I reached the New York Club at 25th Street, I was covered all over with ice and packed snow, and they could scarcely believe me that I had walked from Wall Street. It took three hours to make the journey, end quote. Sadly, he wouldn't live much past telling his heroic tale to the papers, and died on April 18th, a month later. In his honor, donors financed an eight-foot-tall, 1,200-pound bronze statue of the statesman, which was dedicated in 1893. The figure now stands atop a granite pedestal in the southeast corner of Madison Square Park. The Bowery Boys podcast would say, quote, the storm didn't bring the most snow this city would ever experience. There would be blizzards with more snowfall that would hit the city, just about one every decade since. But it's the combination of factors behind the blizzard of 1888 that would make it so impressive and so destructive, end quote. And the cleanup effort was ridiculous. Records say that 24 million cubic yards of snow had to be removed by hand. 
After all, there were no snowplows at the time. NYC data adds, quote, Nevertheless, there were many valuable lessons learned from this tragedy. Gas and telephone lines were moved underground, and construction began on underground train stations. Sanitation was also a big problem addressed after the storm. New York City streets were covered in shattered glass, 500,000 pounds of manure, and 60,000 gallons of horse urine frozen into chunks by this notorious blizzard, end quote. The storm would finally bring plans to create underground transportation, and Mayor Abram Hewitt would be considered the father of the subway. Curiously, Mayor Hewitt had been having this thought for some time. He believed it would be better for the city to go underground. He envisioned a complete underground transportation system. He got a lot of flack for his opinion, especially from the elevated trains. They called it a financial liability. They did not want to share. Even though they were way overcrowded, and by thinning out those crowds would help them serve the public more efficiently, it was a hard no. Roger R. Roes and Jean Sansoni wrote in their book, The Wheels That Drove New York, A History of New York Transit System, would write, quote, The elevateds were making money on the crowded trains and had no desire to dilute their investment by building additional lines, end quote. But it was because of the storm and how it debilitated the city, Mayor Hewitt was convinced that it was the right choice. American Heritage would write his comment as, quote, The blizzard would have one good effect, as it shows the necessity for an underground rapid transit railroad and for getting the wires underground, end quote. It would take 10 years to get the city to wake up to the possibilities of underground transportation, but finally, on October 27, 1904, the New York subway system made its debut at City Hall Station in Manhattan. Unfortunately, Mayor Hewitt did not make it to see his hard work come to fruition, as he died only a year prior to its opening on January 18, 1903, of jaundice. He was 80 years old. He doesn't get a bronze statue, but he does get the title of Father of the Subway. Side note. I didn't realize there was any form of quote-unquote weather service back then in the 1880s, but apparently there was, and they were tracking the storm. But either they were fooled by its presentation, or they were unable to reach the people in time, or, as some have hinted, they didn't bother. They just recorded the information for posterity and science. I don't know the correct answer either, but... I did find this from the National Weather Service in Rapid City, South Dakota. Considerable grumbling was heard on yesterday, and not a little fun was poked at the signal service because the cold wave coming along without any assistance from the Bureau. The flag with the black center did not surmount the staff until yesterday afternoon. The reason for this was the failure of the telegraph company to transmit the following order sent out from St. Paul on Thursday. To Observer Rapid City, hoist cold wave signal. Temperature will fall 20 to 25 degrees before Saturday. Woodruff, Lieutenant. The wires being down, it was impossible to get this order through, and consequently the flag did not get up on time. And from Chadron, Nebraska, January 12th, quote, Communication with other portions of the state by telegraphic is impossible as the wires are down. 
Indications are, however, that the storm is general and that great losses and much suffering will ensure all over the state. End quote. So, apparently they were able to communicate very little. I do know that because of the snowstorms of 1888, it forced the hand of science to establish safety warnings for people so they might avoid such a massive loss of life in the future. Yeah, about that. If you'll stick with me, I have one more story for you. Sometimes Mother Nature refuses to be tamed. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. Now, before you say, wow, that was bad. We've advanced so much these days, nothing like that could happen today. Oh, ho, ho, my friend, I beg to differ. Here's a story I found from 1993. It's called the Storm of the Century, because the Great Blizzard was already taken, and it hit the eastern coast March 12th through the 15th, 1993. Causing up to $10 billion in damages, the Storm of the Century lived up to the hype. The Farmer's Almanac website recalls the storm by writing, quote, The blizzard of 93 formed over the Gulf of Mexico on March 12th and pounded the east coast from Florida to Canada and as far west as the Dakotas for the next three days, bringing hurricane-force winds of up to 110 miles per hour and dropping as much as 69 inches of snow in some areas, end quote. Still, thank goodness for advances in U.S. weather forecasting and alerting systems. Thanks to the National Weather Service, they were able to see the storm coming up weeks in advance, but the reports were so intense that they didn't want to believe it could really be true. But it was no less than a freak of nature. It predicted so much precipitation across such a wide area, they put out the warnings but didn't have a lot of confidence in their reports. More importantly, though, state officials could declare a state of emergency before the storm ever hit. People had ample warning to find shelter and stock up before the sky betrayed what was coming. And yet, 300 perished. The storm affected at least 26 states and even part of Canada. It stretched down into Jacksonville, Florida, and even went on to Honduras. Many of the southern states had trouble putting together emergency plans. They don't even have salt trucks. People were trapped in their homes as they tried clearing the roads, leaving travelers stranded. Buildings collapsed from the weight of the snow and the winds, 
but worst of all were the below freezing temperatures. They just weren't equipped to deal with the effects of those temperatures. And closer to the water's edge, the storm added hurricane-force winds to conjure up waves that towered over the shorelines several feet in the air, wiping out homes and drawing them out into the sea. Weather.gov writes, quote, In terms of human impact, the superstorm of 1993 was more significant than most landfalling hurricanes or tornado outbreaks and ranks among the deadliest and most costly weather events of the 20th century, end quote. And before I was going to put this episode to rest, Buffalo, New York had to have the last word. Just last year, in December of 22, they had a record-breaking snowstorm. The data says it produced 51.9 inches of snow, negative 30 degree temperatures, and it took the lives of over 40 people. Don't mess with Mother Nature. Do you remember the storms of 93 or 2022? I'd love to hear your stories in the comments on our Facebook pages or on Instagram. Or you can come over to the website to the Beyond the Bones blog to hear one more winter storm, the Knickerbocker Storm of 1922. And you're welcome to leave your comments there as well. Also, if you haven't signed up for our Patreon membership as yet, you only have a few days left to snag your extra early bird gift of a Bag of Bones podcast lap blanket. That offer ends on January 22nd. If you have any questions, drop me a DM in the socials and I am happy to answer them for you. So hurry, join us on the inside. The link is in the show notes or you can just go to patreon.com and look for us there. It's going to be such a great year. I'm Elizabeth Boucheret. I'll see you inside on Patreon or right here. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, edited by Katie Bougeret Caldwell, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.